0: She's a really good doctor. Hi, I'm Dr. Lex, but I'm also mom to Isabella, Lance, and Lucia. Our mom takes care of our family, our friends, and her patients. On this podcast, our mom is going to be talking to her doctor friends and teaching you how to keep your family safe and healthy. Okay, mom. Ready for the show? Let's do it. Welcome to Family Health with Dr. Lex. (laughs) Today's episode is not going to resonate with everyone in my usual audience. But if you've gotten this far and you clicked on the episode to listen, chances are you're either searching for gender affirming surgery resources or you know or love someone who is. And so if you've come upon this podcast and you know someone who is looking for resources or information about gender affirming surgery then i would love it and i would be so grateful if you share. Today i'm speaking with Dr. Elda Fisher, who is a board certified facial aesthetic surgeon and an expert in facial gender affirmation surgery. Today we talked about what that means, what's involved, and where someone who is looking for these kinds of procedure can get more information, resources, and even tips about how to get insurance coverage. So i'm really excited to share this important conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Elda Fisher to the show. Hey, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I am very excited to meet my new friend, a local right up the road from me, Dr. Elda Fisher, who is an associate professor of maxillofacial surgery at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Dr. Fisher, so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Great. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. I'm really excited because this topic is not kind of in the typical family medicine lane. This is a really unique topic and I'm excited to learn about it and for you to share some information about your field, what you do, kind of what the process is. So Dr. Fisher is trained as um, a maxillofacial surgeon and has specialty training in cosmetic plastic surgery, but you do gender affirmation surgeries. So I would love to know what that is but I would also love to know how on earth you started as a facial surgeon and you ended up in this very specific and unique and wonderful specialty.
1: Yes. Well, um, well, first let's start off on what gender affirmation surgery is. And so, you know, when, when people think of gender affirmation surgery, they're usually thinking about like, bottom confirmation surgery, like changing the genital organs um, and, and how they look, right? Um, and so, and that's been very popular for the past like 30 years, right? People say gender confirmation is really just changing, you know, um, what you have down below to whatever the other gender usually has, right? Um, uh, but, you know, in the past 10 years, that's really changed a lot. And people have really thought about, you know, what does it mean to present as a female or as a male in public, right? And really, to me, what it what it means is to look that way. And so I really found a nice niche for me to go ahead and um, operate on people's faces so that they look more like the gender that they want to look like. Um, and I have this skill set that I can do it. So it's been a really um, like nice population of people to work on because they're very appreciative of the work. Um, yeah, and I started out really just because I had a private practice in the area. And I had met some transgender patients through that private practice who were asking to look more feminized. And I was able to do that for them, Um, but uh, it's very cost prohibitive, right? Like, you know, it's not like the type of thing that most people can just go out and say, well, I wanna have a more feminized face, right? Because the types of surgery you do can be extremely expensive. And one of them also requires an overnight hospital stay. Um, And since I was practicing mostly at sort of outpatient surgery centers, that was difficult also. So that's why I transitioned my practice to UNC and started seeing this broader group of transgender patients.
0: So when you said you were seeing patients uh, in an outpatient practice, you were seeing patients who were coming to you and asking to look either more feminine because they were transgender male to female or looking more to, to, wanting to look more masculine because they were transgender female to male. And you accomplished that how is that <laughs> surgical procedures, I presume? Is this fillers and Botox? How do you accomplish this extreme, sure. I would imagine, procedure?
1: That's a great question. Well, you know, you can do it, you can run the gamut, right? You can do Botox and fillers and try to like make things look a little bit more feminized on somebody's face, or um, or you can go all the way through surgery. And so the real crux of it is that. For male to female, which is the majority of the patients that I see, and I'll explain that in just a bit, but for male to female, you know, the craniofacial skeleton develops, you know, during puberty, right? So the testosterone has a huge effect on the development of the skeletal bones, obviously the skeletal muscle and the skeletal bones um, and the cartilage structures, right? And so when you're looking at the face and you look at a male craniofacial skeleton, what you're seeing is very strong, um, wide bones, right? And so you have these um, frontal orbital rim that's really thick and heavy and pronounced. You have a larger nose, um, you have a very wide chin, you have a very wide mandible. And those features, once they're developed, are not gonna change, right? And so even when you're 30 and you're taking all this estrogen and hormone blockers, right, the skeleton is gonna stay essentially the same. And so in order to alter those areas, you have to surgically change them. Now, can we do things to mask that? Yes. And so that's really how I got started, right? And so masking it, you can do a little bit of filler, right? You can do some Botox. You can, you know, lift up the brows with the Botox. You know, you can put filler in the cheeks or you can do, um, you know, cheek augmentation with implants. Um, So you can mask a lot of that, but really, if you really want to take care of it, especially this forehead portion and these lateral orbital rims, you have to do an operation. Um, And so that's for male to female, right? Female to male is a little bit different, right? Because female to male, I do have some percent, probably about 10 to 15% of the population that I see is female to male. But female to male is different because testosterone just takes over. And like, you know, as a family medicine doctor, right? Like if you start giving someone testosterone, they're going to get all of these features that are consistent with the male gender, right? They're going to get facial hair, their skin's going to change, right? They're going to build more bulky muscle. And so you, I have fewer patients that are male to female because it's easier for them to present as male. Whereas for female, uh, for male... For male to female, um, it's difficult because even if you have a breast augmentation and even if you have lower body surgery, right? When you put a dress on and go outside, your face still looks like a male's face, and that's really the biggest problem.
0: Yeah, and that has so much to do with the bony structure that you mentioned as kind of set since since adolescence. It's, so it's easier to masculinize a uh, someone who's born female using hormones um, yes. and maybe some in some simpler injections than it is to feminize a male whose structure is set in stone and is definitely uh you know stronger from a bony perspective and distinct characteristic of a male from, yes. from a bony perspective
1: extremely distinct right i mean let's think about like your kids going to the museum of natural science right you could show the children a skull from a male and a skull from a female from you know 2000 years ago and say okay now your job is to go through the museum and pick out the skulls from the males and the skulls from the females and they would be able to do that a 6 year old can do that and identify those features and so when you know you're meeting someone for the first time you you just know right you can see from their face and you know from their craniofacial skeleton if they have more effective testosterone on that skeleton and so it, that's very difficult to mask in any other way than doing heart tissue surgery and that's why that's really important
0: so I envision lots of sh- shaving bone kind of reshaping the front of the face and maybe even kind of like behind the hairline, you know, when we've all seen botched and we've all seen, you know, the, the plastic classic surgery um, shows on television where they kind of like, you know, lift up the nose and they do a little, I envision something way more extensive and, um, technically difficult with, with. Well,
1: you know plus minus not technically difficult sometimes you know when you're doing those really fine things those are super technically difficult but you know the the workhorse of the surgery that we do that I do for transgender surgery is making an incision in the forehead right just behind the hairline mm-hmm. um and then taking it back sort of a coronal incision back behind the ears we we flap that area of scalp da- scalp down Um, And then that exposes the whole um, forehead and the frontal bone and the lateral orbital rims. So once all that's exposed, then you have the ability to recontour that area to be a more feminine look. Now, the biggest problem is that there are lots of doctors that will do that. Um, However, this area right here frequently houses the frontal sinus, which is the central portion of the forehead, right? And so you can't just shave that down Uh, with the expectation that you'll shave it down enough to get rid of this bossing, right. And so usually what I have to do is remove the front table of the frontal sinus bone, set it aside, right, to um, recontour the rest of the forehead and the lateral orbital rims to be more feminized. And we usually use feminine norms and 3D modeling for that. And then I take that piece of bone that I put off to the side recontour that and then reset it back in in a flatter shape so that the forehead is now flat. And the angle, if you can picture this between the forehead and the nose is more obtuse and Mm -hmm. less acute. Um, And so that's really the workforce of what's happening. Now, a lot of transgender patients will go see a surgeon and they'll offer recontouring, but they won't offer that form of sinus setback, which is sort of the key in most patients.
0: Sure. I was going to ask, you mentioned 3D modeling. Do you, are you able to uh, kind of, is there, I guess, a standard a protocol or approach? Do you use your judgment during the procedure or are patients given some options in, you know, kind of um, selecting how they want to look beforehand and how do you go about, uh, you know, approaching the surgery in terms of the aesthetic that you want, that you're going after?
1: Right. So, um, So usually, what I do is I start with the patient's um, CT scan, right? And we're looking at various structures, right? We're looking at the Adam's apple, the mandible, the the chin, uh, and the forehead and the nose. Like those are the big areas that we're looking at, right? Um, And um, I have a you know a a good proportion of patients who are non-binary. So they don't wanna be completely feminized. They just want to be sort of in between, right? Not have such harsh masculinized features or vice versa. Um, I submit that uh, CT scan to a company that I work with um, and we sort of look at their CT scan versus a normalized feminine skull of about the same size. Okay. And then I make my plans to recontour that the patient CT scan based on the normalized feminine CT scan. Right. And that includes that operation that I just told you about. And then typically um, cutting off the mandibular angles to make them a little more tapered, right. So that the feminine face shows a tapered face Um, and then making the chin a little narrower to make it pointier. And that's what we call a genioplasty. Um, and then, and then, usually the final step is doing a rhinoplasty to sort of match the nose with the rest of the face. Um, So when you ask about like, you know, is there like a set plan to do that? Like, not really. There's just not a lot of people doing this um, operation. Uh, I mean, it's becoming more and more common. But I think some of the hurdles that I was facing when I was in a private practice is that, you know, this is really cost prohibitive, right? And so if if just somebody comes to me and they've saved $20,000 and they want this surgery done, right, it's still not enough to get all of this stuff completed because the 3D modeling the titanium guides that we use, the, the hospital overnight stay, all of that stuff is so expensive. So you really need to be at a tertiary care center where you can work with the insurance coverage um, in some cases to make sure that you can get all of these sort of details done. If you're going to a private practice, they typically do not use any 3D planning because it's just so cost prohibitive, right? And so what they'll, t- they'll often do is take a lateral x-ray of the forehead and face, right? and make contour adjustments based on that.
0: How how long are you typically in the OR with this with these patients and what are the uh what are the risks how do those risks compare to like a typical, you know, nose job or or
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: I think like the biggest,
1: you know, the overall problem with this um, operation is that it does take a long time. It's about a seven hour operation, top to bottom. It does include some soft tissue procedures. So we start with the scalp. Usually we do this, the, you know, we flap down the scalp, do the orbital contouring and the frontal sinus setback. And then, you know, then we do a hairline lowering procedure. So we take away some of the hairline that's got alopecia, male pattern baldness, um, and we lower the hairline altogether for the female face. Uh, and we do a brow lift, right? And so that part takes about four hours or so. And then we move to the um, lower face. And we, I do a mandibular angle resection and a genioplasty, um, And that takes about you know, two and a half to three hours. And then sometimes we go down and do the Adam's apple if we haven't done it beforehand. And so, you know, in total, you're looking at seven or eight hours in the operating room at least. And so it's a really long day. Um, And I think that's the biggest problem, right? Is that, you know, being under a general anesthetic, you know, for, for 10 hours in the day is a long thing to get through. Right. Um, And then, so they have a one night, usually a one night hospital stay, but the, the recovery is not so bad. Right. I mean, it's really just a bony remodeling surgery. And so the recovery really isn't terrible. Um, There's relatively low risk of bleeding. The scalp bleeds a lot, but you know, Overall, like the blood loss is relatively minimal in comparison to the length of surgery.
0: When I was looking at the team that you work alongside, there's a lot of people on that team. There's a lot of different surgeons, a lot of different types of surgeons, GYN, urologists, plastic, facial plastic surgeons, maxillofacial surgeons. Um, Can you just, before I continue, just tell us what is the difference between a maxillofacial surgeon and a plastic surgeon, just for those folks listening?
1: oh yeah so um really different training to begin with you know i started my training in oral and maxillofacial surgery um here at um, university of north carolina i left and did fellowship um, in ohio and full body cosmetic surgery and then i came back and really just worked on the face plastic surgery encompasses a lot of those things right plastic surgery um you have a training program um but the training program includes a lot of things so while a lot of people you know consider um, aesthetic surgery is plastic surgery. There's a lot of different fields that do aesthetic surgery, right? So plastic surgery really is a lot more, right? They do hands, they do, you know, they do hand surgery, they do burn surgery, they, they have a, they have a broad, broad training exposure and to specialize in aesthetic surgery, they usually also do a fellowship. So it's just a different route to get to a fellowship.
0: Um, and, and do I understand correctly that oral maxillofacial surgery involves a lot regarding like, dentition regarding the, the, the lower face and the jaw. Typically it does. Yeah. And so typically it
1: does mostly um, oral and maxillofacial surgeons consider themselves the surgeons of the bones of the face. Right. And so that's why doing this frontal sinus setback and this bony recontouring is pretty germane to our training to begin with. Um, and so, yes. And a lot of the lower face surgery, I actually limit my practice not to doing, you know, the, the teethy part of stuff, but, um, but yeah, I had a lot of training in the lower face bones and trauma surgery, um, dealing with the face bones.
0: Yeah. You bring up a great point. I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, you think plastic surgery, you think elective, um, surgery for aesthetics, for the way that you look that you don't like about yourself, but plastic surgeons and facial reconstructive surgeons are doing all kinds of, you know, repairing congenital deformities, uh, treating burns, uh, there's a whole spectrum of types right. of- that, that plastic surgeons do aside from, you know, nose jobs and breast augmentations and.
1: Exactly. So, you know, our, some of our plastic surgeons on the team, Yemi Ogunlele, who is the, on the transgender team, he's really amazing. He does flap surgery, which basically, as you might be aware, it takes a, like a flap of tissue from somewhere else and like transposes it, you know, in a vascularized form. And he can create like the male um, external genitalia from that from, a, from a, someone that was born as female, which is really amazing, amazing what he does. So, you know, honestly to, to sort of minimize his training to like, oh, you just do, you know, make people beautiful. Like that's just, I mean, that's so limiting, you know for what his scope of practice is and what for so many classic surgeons scope of practices.
0: Absolutely, I was blown away by the list of people that I saw on your team. I mean, there are several nurse coordinators, there are social workers, there's a psychiatrist, and that was kind of my next question: is that this is obviously, you know, a, a commitment? This is a commitment that um, that requires, I'm certain, uh, a, a long evaluation leading up to it. So can you kind of go through what what are some of the steps that someone who is thinking about pursuing this type of surgery um, has to go through in order to get to your OR?
1: Yeah. So, so, you know, most surgeons and most doctors that deal with transgender patients are, are involved in something called the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Um, And the World Professional Association for Transgender Health uh, itemizes criteria um, to be readiness for surgery, right? Whether you're talking about any type of gender-affirming surgery. So we follow those criteria. Um, You know, the main criteria is that you have lived in your current gender role for at least 12 months. Um, Whether or not that means that you've been taking hormones or not taking hormones, but you have lived in that current gender role for at least 12 months. You also need a couple of letters in support from various um, doctors that you see. One would would be a letter in support of surgery from like a mental health therapist of some kind, either a therapist, a, a psychologist, or of course a psychiatrist. Um, and then another would be a letter in support from your primary care doctor or the doctor that prescribes hormones for you. Um, and so we need those two letters in support, plus you know your role in your current gender. And then you know, for me, I really look at the whole social situation, right? I wanna make sure that they have a social situation that is supportive of what they're doing, right? That they have people at home that can help them take care of them. Um, that they have been thoughtful about this decision. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, on a separate side, I kind of look to make sure that I think my patient is really ready because, you know, as you can imagine, changes on the face are really big, right? You really have to be ready to look in the mirror and see a, a totally different you, right? Um, you still look like yourself, but you look like a different gender, and that can be very shocking. So if you're not ready for that, or if your social circle isn't ready for that, that can be very difficult. Um, So we follow those WPATH criteria, all of the surgeons, doctors on our team follow that WPATH criteria, uh, and we make our decisions from there.
0: Do you work as a multidisciplinary team to approach each patient, meaning does the urologist and the psychiatrist and the facial plastic surgeon, the social workers and the primary doctors, everybody get together and kind of review each case to make sure that everyone's on the same page and then plan for, you know, kind of what steps this process is going to take place in?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, That would be ideal, but let me just give you some numbers, right? Um, So the transgender population in the United States is about 0.6% to 0.8%. And for all of you family medicine doctors listening out there, that is the same number of people that have type 1 diabetes, right? So it is an enormous population of people in the United States that are transgender. So here in North Carolina, that means there are 50,000 transgender people. Okay. Um, And so, you know, imagine a clinic where you talked about every type one diabetic on a multidisciplinary level, right? That would be really challenging, especially if there were only one clinic in North Carolina to house all of the type one diabetics. And that's pretty much what we have here um, in this small area. They have a group at Duke, we have a group here at UNC, but it's really a small number of practitioners that that are responding to all of this population. So what we do is we, we talk about the cases that are difficult, the cases that we're not sure how to proceed with, the cases that are um, maybe need a little more coordination of care based on timing of surgery. And we meet once a month to discuss those particular patients. But for right now, for the rest of it, you know, we kind of just follow the notes and make sure that we're communicating. Of course, I hate Epic, but we communicate via Epic <laughs> to make sure that you know we're all on the same page. But yeah, I would love a multidisciplinary team to all sit down and talk about each patient, but I think that the bandwidth is just not there for that right now.
0: Yeah, hopefully as um, training in your field continues to grow and programs like this continue to become available, that will become a reality as um, increased access to resources um, I
1: hope so. I mean it's it's just mind blowing how many patients there are out there. And I have to give credit to Catherine Croft, who is the nurse coordinator for the transgender health program here. She basically started it from scratch, knowing that it was necessary. Um, and a program that you know started from scratch, I think in 2017, has blown up and it's it's almost impossible to get in because we have a wait list for the program now because it's just so hard to, you know, to have those times available to see the practitioners. So we really need a lot more people that are willing to do these operations.
0: Is there, for someone who is looking to go, um, well, let me start, let me rephrase that. Are, are there people who choose to do one part of the surgery or do most people try to go through all of, all of the steps, meaning like the facial um, affirmation uh, and then the reconstruction of the genitalia?
1: Yeah. So, Uh, That's a great question. I would say most people do the lower body surgery first and then the face. Um, I have seen it the other way around. Um, And I have patients that just do face, right? Um, And you can imagine why, right? Um, Many of my patients have been married for 10 years, right? They're very comfortable with their parts. They want to present as the other gender, but they're not comfortable with changing all of their parts and how they work um, in, in their marriage, right? And so I have a number of patients that have just changed their face, maybe gotten a breast augmentation as well, but haven't done any lower body surgery.
0: Yeah, I imagine that as somebody who's in a relationship or who's been presenting as the the opposite gender for a long time and they are comfortable that there's a, well, I imagine that it's, there's some, um, uh, there's some fear about how things are going to change in any situation, (laughs) especially if you are, you know, you, you know, you know how everything works, you know how to use it, you know how to get pleasure out of it. And then all of a sudden there's like this potential that it could be. Right you know, completely different and far You're
1: working and you have this relationship and you have a supportive spouse. So you don't want to to ruin any of that. So I completely understand. At first I was like, Oh really? You don't want that. But now I have a number of patients that, that don't want any lower body surgery.
0: That's interesting. And it doesn't really matter what um, order they, they approach surgery. And it just kind of, um, yeah,
1: it doesn't really matter at all what order you approach it. And it's really what most affects the gender dysphoria. I think a lot of people approach the lower body first because that's typically covered by insurance, yeah. um, whereas facial surgery and the trachea is often not covered by insurance. So we're very lucky to have Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina here that covers facial surgery. Um, which is terrific. I'm so excited that they changed their policy on that, but there's a couple of other, you know, um, insurance care, and there's some insurance carriers that do, and um, there's some companies that have it as a writer, but in general, like I spent a lot of my time filing appeals with sh- insurance companies <laughs> and yeah. trying to, you know, let people know that, uh, you know, facial surgery um, in the setting of gender dysphoria isn't cosmetic. Right? Um, Facial surgery in the setting of gender dysphoria is just what I said. You can have all of the parts below, but if you put a dress on and go to a bar, someone is still going to think that you are a man wearing a dress, right? And the problem with that is that that puts you at a very high risk of community violence. Right? It puts you at a very high risk of suicide. Um, it can really increase your gender dysphoria because you've gone through all of this surgery right? that has been you know, changing for you, like a stress for you, and you still go out and you still have the same problems as you did before. So it can be extremely disheartening. So trying to explain that to insurance companies, that it doesn't make sense for you to cover lower body surgery if you're not going to cover the face, um, is a challenge. Um, and I think that usually when I talk to one of the medical directors, they understand where I'm coming from but it really requires a systemic change right so people can understand that this is not a cosmetic procedure and even you know some of my residents are like oh she's a cosmetic patient i'm like no
0: she's not cosmetic <laughs> this yeah. is not cosmetic yeah absolutely medically necessary is yes. Yes you know, if we're going to approach these patients, um, with the respect and consideration that they deserve in order for them to feel whole and human, the same way we want to approach, you know, a patient with diabetes, who's trying to, you know, live their lives with the best quality that they can, um, then, then, then medically necessary is the term that I think we would probably want to put that under, you know, it's kind of, I was thinking as you were speaking, kind of similar to like um, fertility treatments, like this is, not a life threatening condition. You're not going to die if you remain looking like a man who is presenting as a woman. Um, but for you to be your whole human self, which is, you know, what we, we are in the business of helping people live their healthiest lives and their safest lives, you know, mm-hmm. like, mentioned um the risks associated with living in, as a transgender person in this country are significant. They um,
1: really are. It's it's really it's heartbreaking. And so many of these patients have been disenfranchised for a large portion of their lives. You know, so many of them have you know difficult relationships with their families and haven't been able to find health care or someone supportive in their health care. Right. And we're very lucky here in the triangle area that there are so many, you know Family medicine doctors that are, will, you know, willing and able and understanding to see our transgender patients and offer that gender affirming care. Um, but you know, it, it, I'm sure it's been very difficult. Twenty years ago, that must have been significantly more difficult for them.
0: Yeah, and for you know, for the young Dr. Fisher who was going into medical school. Yeah she was going to go into one aspect or one type of um, surgical specialty, you know, for you to come out in this incredibly unique and specific and noble and wonderful specialty that you're in, where you it's not, like I said, it's not life or death, but the, um, the quality of life that you confer to patients or that you help them achieve, um, it must be so rewarding for you.
1: It really is. It's been a real change. I have to say when I came back from fellowship, I started doing a lot of just aesthetic surgery and aesthetic procedures. Um, And most of my patient population was, you know, 38 to 52 year old women who wanted facial surgery um, in for aesthetic reasons or Botox or fillers or things like that. And I was doing that. But um, once I found this transgender population that was so grateful for the work that I started doing, I had to find a way to keep doing that, right? Um, And they have just really changed my perspective on, on my career and like the purpose that I have. And I think that finding that has really helped me a lot because I enjoyed aesthetic surgery. I like aesthetic surgery, but what I really like is making a difference in somebody's actual life, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 feel strongly that you, you do, and you're just such a special person for being um, for offering your gifts to that population.
1: Oh, it's been great. It's been, it's, I, I'm lucky that I'm lucky that they choose me, honestly.
0: <laughs> you're so, you're so great. The last question that I have for you is regarding insurance. Um, you know, I, are there programs out there for people who don't have insurance, who are living in the skin that they're not comfortable with and who want to make a change? What resources are out there for people who don't have the 20 plus thousand dollars that are needed or don't have the insurance coverage? Are there any?
1: Yeah. So the best thing that I can tell people that are in that situation is to um, go on the healthcare exchange right? When it opens in November and purchase healthcare off the exchange from Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. That's not like a plug for Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, but right now that's the only one in North Carolina that consistently covers facial surgery and all gender affirmation surgery. They have a policy on gender surgery. Um, And so if you can just, you know, when you're buying your healthcare insurance for the year, change to that, that's probably the most helpful thing that you can do.
0: For folks outside of North Carolina, I assume that there are other plans that have that as a policy and you can search for that. Is that
1: it depends on the state. Right. And so, you know, California, Oregon, Washington, Wisconsin, like, you know, there's a bunch of states out there that it's routinely covered on most of their major medical you know, insurance coverages. And then, of course, you get to states like Texas and Uh, you know, Arkansas and Florida, where you're not gonna find it, right? So it's really state by state, which is really unfortunate. Um, You know, one of the other things that you can do is go to your employer, right? And if you work for a very large employer, like Starbucks, for example, Starbucks has written it into their policy, right? So it's not covered by their insurance policy, but it's a separate rider. So once it's denied, Starbucks covers it themselves. Right. And so working for like a major company like that, where you can sort of turn the keys of um, a larger global company to let them know that this is important is, is a good way to do it also.
0: Wow. That's great. Great advice. Um, and if you're in North Carolina, you need to make your way over to the Triangle where, um, uh, you know, living here in Chapel Hill and Carrboro, uh probably one of the coolest places to live in terms of diversity and inclusion.
1: Definitely. <laughs>
0: For sure, especially, especially, you know, um, in this state, I'm from the Northeast and coming here, I have seen more support for and of the transgender um, LGBTQA population uh, here than I ever did in the Northeast. So it's an incredible community to be part of.
1: Where in the Northeast are you from?
0: Uh, I'm originally from New Jersey, but I trained in New York.
1: Okay, Nice. Yeah, I lived in New Jersey for a while also.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, my mother lives in New Jersey, but I grew up in the East Bay of, of San Francisco. So, I mean, I I grew up where, you know, LGBT, right? Which is what it was then, was really commonplace, right? And it, you know, that was 30 years ago. Um, I'm 45, so that was, that was you know, 35 years ago. Um, and it's taken a long time to make its way down to the South, right? <laughs>
0: Probably the biggest thing that I noticed, if I can put a finger on it, is that in the Northeast, it's kind of like live and let live. You know, it's no, I don't think anybody's really, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, from where I stood and what I observed, um, you know, it appears that people were um, in general able to live their lives as they were.
1: Yeah. As you come
0: here and diversity is actually celebrated. It's actually. Um, it's a, we make it a point to celebrate all kinds and it brings tears to my eyes because it's so different from, it
1: is different. It it is really different. And it's like, it's really been great living here in the triangle. It's hard because, you know, the moment you drive 20 minutes out of the triangle, it's not the same anymore. Right. It's um, but here in the triangle, we live in this really nice microcosm that I wish, you know, the rest of North Carolina would be also, but I see what you're saying like up in the Northeast it's sort of live and let live, like just, just do what you want to do. And I'm going to do what I want to do. And, you know, just don't bother me and I won't bother you. Um, and that is a different attitude altogether. Uh, it's fine. I mean, it, you know, attitudes are regional, right? <laughs> I would rather have that than 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 nothing at all.
0: Exactly. exactly. And that's not to say that there's not, you know, discrimination or violence. I don't mean to, to, to minimize the, you know, the incidence of Uh, uh, discrimination that transgender population faces anywhere they go, but it just, there's a very clear celebration of diversity here. Whereas I feel like in other places, it's just kind of like not acknowledged or not, um, you know, really recognize. Definitely. Um, <laughs> I, I'm wondering, is there, are there any other points or pearls of wisdom that I'm not thinking to ask you that you could offer to our friends who are listening? Um, I know that some people are going to want to share this with their friends. Um, any other advice you can think of for people who are considering, uh, gender affirmation surgery or know someone who is,
1: um, well, my best piece of advice is to get them hooked up with the, you know, UNC transgender center, um, and to sort of, you know, sort of make those inroads starting from there. But you know, I will say to your listener population that a lot of these um, physicians that listen to your podcast, you know, it's so important to have gender affirming care, and it can be a little bit, um, probably daunting to go ahead and start that. Um, but I found from my practice at the moment I started a little bit of transgender surgery, like I just had this huge rush in. And so if you're interested in providing gender affirming care, you know, start with WPATH. They set all their criteria. They can make it easy for you to sort of figure out like how to prescribe the hormones you need to prescribe and how to measure those levels. And I think the more family medicine providers we have that are that are familiar and comfortable with um with doing the gender affirming care, um, the more we can. Get those people plugged in because everybody knows that you know the family medicine doctor is the quarterback, right? They're the ones that are going to be able to sort of like funnel them into the right people, either the psychiatrist, the psychologist, or the surgeon, or or the team. And so, I think the more family medicine doctors we can have that are comfortable with the care, the better it will be.
0: And and healthcare professions, uh, uh, you know, even beyond healthcare professions, simply learning the language. Um, will open the doors for people to kind of spread the word that this is a person who is an ally. This is a person who understands the the terminology. That was a lesson that I learned the hard way a long time ago um, about, you know, just using the appropriate vocabulary, approaching a patient with the appropriate pronouns and using them correctly as you speak with them or about them um, is a huge step in, 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 Acquiring their confidence and their trust, and establishing a rapport, and and that's true for any profession, but especially in healthcare when their health is in your hands. Um, yes. So I, I, that was. That's a great piece of advice, a great piece of advice. And um, I would just like for you, first of all, thank you so much for doing the beautiful work that you do.
1: Thank you. This is so great that you publicize all of these things on your podcast. What a great podcast you've made. Oh,
0: thank you so much. These are kind of like the the non-traditional things that I really like to get out there because when people search for information, sometimes with issues like this, it's hard to find. Uh, (laughs) It's hard to find people just talking about it. Like, like regular conversation, you know? Um, so I'm I'm just grateful that you're here, that you took the time out of your busy schedule. Your center is so beautiful and comprehensive. And I just hope that everyone will go and check out the UNC Transgender Care Program. But please, Dr. Fisher, let us know where our friends can find you um, both uh, on the internet, online and um, in person, if you would.
1: Yes. Well, you can go ahead and search for me. I'm on the Department of Urology website at UNC. Um, you can email me at elda.fisher at unc.edu. That's easy, right? Elda, E-L-D-A dot Fisher. Um, And um, you can find me um, on the website at UNC.
0: I feel really fortunate that we have such uh, an incredible world-class healthcare institution right in our neighborhood. I hope that you and I can get coffee someday so that we can meet in person.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: (laughs) And I hope that my friends that you are listening will go check out Dr. Fisher and please share this as much as you can with anybody that you know, who is considering um, gender affirmation surgery. Dr. Fisher, thank you so much. You've been awesome.
1: Thank you, Alexis. It's been great. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon.
0: Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to my podcast, Family Health with Dr. Lex. If you love the music like I do, you can find more at therealmichaelvm.com forward slash music. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review, subscribe, and share with your friends. You can ask questions, suggest topics for future podcast interviews, and find more health and wellness information on my website, drlexlifestylemedicine.com. See you next time.